John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. John 2, 18 to 22. We'll start at verse 13. The temple of his body. We'll begin at verse 13 today in our reading of the background of our passage. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changer seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us, seeing that you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time to focus on your word, to study your word, and to meditate on its truths. Thank you that Christ indeed is the supreme temple, and he has not only been crucified on our behalf, but he has been raised from the dead. We ask, Father, that we will put our hope in the resurrection of Christ, all that he is, and especially the supreme miracle of his resurrection, because it is for our redemption. And may we, Father, have the courage to preach this to others, even when they are incredulous, even when they disdain us and mock us. We ask, Lord, that we will exalt the resurrection of Christ. For in his resurrection is our resurrection. And we ask in his name. Amen. Well, in verses 13 to 17, we saw last time that Christ entered the temple. He made a whip and he drove out those who were exploiting the circumstances and the presence of the temple in order to buy and sell. They were not supposed to do those kinds of things in the temple. And when they did, they were sacrilegious. They were blaspheming God, dishonoring God. And it brought about Christ's zeal or his jealousy and his wrath concerning the things of God. And he wanted to get rid of them and to display that he was there on mission, commissioned by God to demonstrate who he was and that they should have the same kind of love and devotion to God that he did. Well, when he performs this act of driving them all out and saying, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise, it says in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They remembered from Psalm 69.9 that Christ would come and show zeal for the house of God, show this great diligence and enthusiasm and devotion to the house of God that 
Christ the Messiah would come. Malachi 3.1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3.1, the Lord did come in this first case, in, and in this first case of his appearance there at the temple during the Passover, which was at the beginning of the Jewish calendar year, religious calendar year, he came to demonstrate and to manifest that he came on a mission to glorify God and to pursue the righteousness of God to show that he was the Christ. The disciples remembered that the Christ would come to do that. Well, when they remembered, perhaps the Jews, the Jewish authorities who had taught the disciples remembered the same scripture. <coughs> they perhaps remembered the same scripture from Psalm 69, 9, that Christ would come and perform this kind of action when he first displayed himself to the people of the Jews. Well, in verse 18, it says, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, Jesus said, Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And he declared those words. He did it with great zeal for God. He did it also manifesting that he wanted to get rid of all the sin and evil that was happening in the place of worship, get rid of it all. So they naturally respond to that. When they, when they say, when it says they answered him, it's likely that this answer was an answer to the things he said and the things he did and what he was claiming by that action, claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah, all prophesied throughout the pages of the Old Testament. The Old Testament. The Jews, remember, typically in the book of John, the Jews, not always, but typically it means the Jewish officials, the Jewish authorities, the Jewish teachers. Sometimes it's the crowds, and occasionally it might be the righteous or the people of God like that, but most often it is the Jewish authorities. And that's what's happening here. The Jewish authorities therefore answered and said to him, Seeing what he just said and seeing what he did, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? What sign do you show to us? What they mean by this is what is the supreme sign? What is the miracle? What is the miraculous power of God that you are going to display here to prove that you are the Christ and you have the authority to do this? What is that miracle? They're not just asking for any miracle, likely. They're asking for a particular one, the, the one that proves who he is. We know that he, he gives it to them by saying, I'm going to die and rise again. That is the supreme miracle. But let's see how the Jews have this tendency, they have this proclivity to want to see miracles to prove that a prophet is truly a prophet of God, that they want to actually see miracles. They want to see something stunning happen in their presence before they're going to believe. They have this tendency. And usually this tendency is a sinful ten tendency. Instead of simply believing the word of God, they want to see some work of power. They want to see some magic show. They want to see something that's so amazing and stunning in their eyes that they're going to be convinced. Let's see from other scriptures that they have this tendency 
But Jesus typically pushes back on that tendency and he points to one thing. And the one is his supreme miracle of his death and resurrection. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus has been performing miracles up to this point in Matthew. He has even been casting out demon-possessed men. And then in verse 38, but that's not enough for them. That's not enough for the Jewish officials. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Christ responds by saying, You people are an evil and adulterous generation because you crave for a sign. You crave for a sign. It's not enough for you to hear the words of God and to believe it. You want to see something miraculous. You want to see a sign. And I'm not going to give you a sign. If you want to put your hope on one thing, one miracle, one sign, it is going to be what Jonah the prophet experienced and what he preached and what will happen to me. And just as it happened to Jonah, I, the Son of Man, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, implying that he's going to be there temporarily for those three days, but then rise from the dead. Just as Jonah was temporarily in the whale or the great fish, and then also came out of the fish. Matthew chapter 16, they weren't satisfied. Matthew chapter 16, it happens again. Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing him, asked him, to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. When they insisted on seeing a a miraculous show, he says, I'm not going to give that to you. The only thing I'm going to tell you about is the sign of Jonah. And then he walks away. He doesn't keep preaching to them. He doesn't perform a small miracle to try to convince them nothing. He walks away. He walks away from them. Another is Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Their incessant desire for this kind of miracle. 21, 23. 21, 23. And when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? See there again, they are challenging who he is and what he's saying and doing. 
saying, who gave you this authority and by what authority are you doing these things? And if it were God himself, then he would show that by performing a miracle. But because they don't believe God sent him, they challenge his source or his authority. This is their insatiable desire. Now let's go to the book of John. Let's go to the book of John and see that this happens throughout this book also. Our examples will be in chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 1. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Why was the great multitude following Christ? It says there, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. That's why they were following him. They weren't focused on believing in what the signs signified. They were focused on seeing these miracles. It's amazing to see somebody lame walk, somebody blind see, somebody mute or dumb to be speaking, right? Or a dead man to come back to life. It's amazing to see those things. They went to see the spectacle of a miracle rather than to believe in the purpose or the significance of those miracles. Chapter 6, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. What had he done in this passage up to this point? There were 5,000 men plus women and children, and he took a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he supplied enough food for the crowds of people. So because they saw that, they said, okay, he is the prophet who is to come into the world. But did they believe? No. As we continue reading, these same people, many of them follow Jesus from one place to another. And then when they do meet up with him in verse 26, John 6, 26. John 6, 26. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In verse 26, he confronts them for following him. You would think that because they followed him, Jesus would be happy about it, and he would compliment them. But he doesn't. He says, you seek me, verse 26, not because you saw signs. And what he means is, because you saw signs, you believed in what I was preaching, that it was a confirmation of what I was preaching. That's what he means. But they followed him because they ate and were filled. Their stomach was full, so they believed or they followed him for that reason. But they didn't believe in his words. They didn't believe in the gospel because he confronts their purpose in following him in verse 27. They are working for the food which perishes, 
for the temporary food that perishes. And then in verse 26, or 29, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Why does he say that? Because they did not believe in him. He was preaching to them, but they did not believe in him. That's why also, for, for example, he says in verse 35, to the same crowd, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. They were following him. Their bellies were full, but not their spiritual life. And he tells them directly at this point in verse 36, yet do not believe. You have seen me, you have heard me, you have seen the miracles I have performed, but you just want the benefits of the miracles for physical things. You don't want to understand the significance of the miracles for spiritual things and believe in the gospel. This is the tendency of the Jewish people. In 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Apostle Paul says, Jews seek for signs and Greeks for wisdom. Jews are always chasing after signs as an excuse to believe. And Greeks or Gentiles, they look for wisdom. They look for knowledge, an accumulation of wisdom, philosophies and theologies and whatever they can learn about the world and think that they are smart and bright and brilliant people and God should care for them, God should take care of them because of those reasons. And the Jews, on the other hand, are saying, we're not going to believe until we see a miracle. Is there any difference between the Jews and the Greeks and us today? No, there's no difference. We encounter many people who say, if Christ were right here, and if Christ were preaching, and if Christ were right here performing miracles, I would believe. But I can't see him. And I don't believe any of those miracles happened in the Bible. Really? No, they wouldn't believe. They would make excuses just like they did in Jesus' day. Because human nature is the same. Human nature is the same. 2,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, yesterday, today, this nation and any nation of the world, human nature is the same. It is unbelieving, it is sinful, it's corrupt. It does not have a desire to know God and please God unless God first awakens us to his true knowledge through the preaching of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. We're no different than they, the Jews. And finally, look at Luke's chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Remember we said they refuse to believe in his word. Luke chapter 16. In this case, Jesus explains the difference between the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was poor and a believer, and when he died, he went to be with Abraham. The rich man was rich, but an unbeliever, and when he died, he went to Hades and was in torment. Well, the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, in verse 27, Since the circumstances of the afterlife cannot be changed, whatever happens in the afterlife is fixed forever. Verse 27, and he said, that is, the rich man said to Abraham, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, 
father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. The problem is not the lack of miracles. Miracles are given, yes, to confirm faith, but miracles are not there to elicit faith. Faith will be only true faith if it believes in the word of God. Moses and the prophets, the words of Christ, the words of the apostles in the New Testament, they must believe what's in scripture. That's where true faith is born. The spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. And miracles are just an addition to the believers, a confirmation to them that they should continue to believe in this word. But that's not the Jews of Jesus' day. Let's return to chapter 2, John 2, John 2 and verse 19. John chapter 2 and verse 19. They demand, they crave for a sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He does not give them a sign immediately. He doesn't heal somebody, correct? He doesn't do anything like that. He does not give them what they want. He only points them to the one true and ultimate sign, the death and resurrection of Christ. But he doesn't say it in plain words. He doesn't say it in literal words. He says it in in terms of a metaphor or in terms of a parable. He says it in terms of a figure of speech. What's he doing when he does this? He is making that which is a clear spiritual truth. He's explaining it in an ambiguous way, in a mystical way, in a way that is dark to the unbelieving hearers. He's saying it to them in that way. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Before we go to confirm this, notice when he says destroy this temple, this is an imperative. Destroy this temple. But occasionally, in, in English and even in the, the Bible, occasionally, rarely, we will use the imperative as a conditional statement. That is, if you destroy this temple, then I will raise it up in three days. That's what he means by this. He's not telling them, you better destroy the temple. He's not commanding them to do it like that. The typical use of the imperative is to issue a command or a request like that. But in this case, he's not doing either of them. It's the rare use of the imperative form of the verb to issue the, the conditional statement. If you destroy this temple, then I will raise it up in three days. That's what he means. But ironically, they will do that. They will do it. And they will do it in ways that they did not imagine. We'll speak more of that in a moment. But now, 
when he says, if you destroy this temple, he's not telling them literally, you will kill me. You will deliver me over to the Romans and I will be impaled on a cross and I'm going to be put to death for no crime of my own, no sin of my own, nothing against you, the Jewish nation, nothing against the Roman Empire. I'm not going to be doing any criminal activity, but I'm going to be put to death. You people will be responsible for it, more responsible than the Romans. Yes, the Romans are responsible, but you will be more responsible because you had more knowledge and you shouldn't have done so. Yes, that will happen. Why did he not say it in all those ways to make it clear to them? Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, he explains. Why do the prophets and why do the apostles and why does Christ speak in parables? Why does he speak in ambiguities? Why does he speak in metaphors? Why does he speak in a way that the majority of his hearers will not understand? Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. After announcing the parable of the sower and seeds and soil, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables, to the multitudes of people? Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again, and I heal them. The disciples not the crowds of disciples, but a smaller group of them, take Jesus aside and they ask him in verse 10, why do you speak to them, that is the big crowd, why do you speak to them in parables? Why don't you just say it plainly? Why don't you just speak literally, Jesus? That way they will understand. But when you speak in parables, when you speak in these foggy ways, they're not going to get it. When you speak in riddles and metaphors, they're not always going to understand. That's the implication. And Jesus said, I'll do it on purpose. Verse 11, I do it on purpose. To you, this smaller group, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. I do it on purpose because God grants, when he says it has been granted, he means God grants to the small group of disciples to understand, but not to the big group of disciples, not to the crowds of people. The mysteries of God are not revealed to them, but it is revealed to you. It is granted to you, but it is not granted to them. In fact, whatever little truths they do comprehend, verse 12 says, I'm going to one day take it all away from them. Such as, 
when they initially hear something, they comprehend it, but then the devil takes it away, then they forget all about it, and they move on and carry on with their life as though they never heard the gospel or any truth of the gospel or any detail of the gospel ever in their life. And on the day of judgment, it's going to be worthless to them. It will be useless for it will not benefit them on that day. I'm going to take it all away from them. And then verses 13 to 15, he says, there are people who see with their physical eyes, but not their spiritual eyes. They, they hear with their physical ears, but not with their spiritual ears. Their heart, their heart is beating and is able to understand, comprehend some things, but not true things and spiritual things. They don't receive it. They don't receive it, and there is no conversion and healing for their soul. That's the way it is. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, do we have proof that those hearers in John chapter 2 did not understand? Do we have proof that they did not understand or they understood aspects of it, but not completely so that when they spoke up, they said wrong things? Yes. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus has been arrested. He is before the authorities. At this point, he is before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas, the high priest. So one, the the most significant Jewish authority of the day, the high priest. He's before him and the council of other teachers and officials of the Jewish faith. And Jesus is confronted. Look at verse 59. 2659. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find it, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. What, does, what do these two say? That Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They understood temple, temple of God. They understood destroy. They understood Jesus was going to do it. They understood Jesus was going to rebuild it. They even understood that it would happen in three days. But they applied it wrongly. They applied it to the literal building temple and not to Jesus' body. They applied it in the wrong way. Another um, place where this occurs is in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Mark also records similar words, but a, a, a little bit more. Mark 14, verse 55. It's the same scenario, same context. Mark 14, 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were finding none. For many were giving false testimony against him, and yet their testimony was not consistent. Their testimony was not consistent. And some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. 
these false witnesses are contradicting each other because they're not giving the same details of what Jesus said. Because why? Because the gist of what Jesus said, they misunderstood. They understood this little part and that little part, but it wasn't the, the substance of the matter. The gist of the matter, they did not understand. And therefore, there was contradictions at that point, which proves that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up in a way to bring confusion and murkiness into the minds of his hearers because they were wickedly, insistently craving for a miracle, a sign. And Jesus throws it back on them and says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He does not speak plainly, he speaks figuratively and they misunderstood. Furthermore, in John 2, 19, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. We know he is speaking of his own physical body according to verse 21. He's speaking about his own physical body. So when he says, I will raise it up in three days, notice who is going to raise it up? Christ. Christ will raise it up. He says words similar to this in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, 17. 10, 17 and 18. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Christ says that this commandment from the Father is a commandment to lay down his life willingly and to take up his life willingly. Nobody is taking it away from me. It's not as though it's out of my control. It's not out of the control of the Father. No, no. I am doing it willingly. I lay it down willingly and I take it up willingly. The truths manifested here are that what the Father does, the Son does. They are in perfect harmony, not in disagreement. John 8, 29. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. The other truth we know is that even though it is the Jews and the Romans who will destroy his physical body, it's not out of control. That's why he says in 10.18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. That's what Peter preached when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. He said, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. Yes, God's predetermined plan, but you nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. It was not out of the control of God. It was not out of the purpose of God for that to happen. And also, who is raising his own body from the dead, according to these verses? John 2, 19, I will raise it up again. Verse John 10, 17, I may take it up again. Verse 18, I have authority to take it up again. Even the resurrection of the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, 
was according to the miraculous, mighty, divine power of Christ as deity. It's one of the places in Scripture, many places, where the deity of Christ is clearly asserted. If he were only a man or a dead man, spirit and body dead and, and gone, how could he raise his own body up from the grave? But because he possesses a divine nature, remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He had the nature of God, the divine nature and power of God, the omnipotent power of God, the omnipresent power of God, the omniscient power of God. He had all of those, and he was able, therefore, to raise his own body up from the grave. Yes, it's true that typically the scripture says it was the Father who raised Jesus up from the grave. Remember from Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? So typically it is God the Father. Like Galatians 1, 1 says, God the Father who raised him from the dead. It is typically the Father. But it's also the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. He explains the gospel, and he explains how Jesus was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. But then, verse 4 who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here, the Spirit of holiness is responsible for the things mentioned here, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And we're talking about Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 9. Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if you, anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us is the Spirit of God, is the Spirit of Christ, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also shall be raised from the dead. How? Through his Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 11. The Holy Spirit also is responsible by his miraculous power for raising Christ up from the dead. And he will do that also for us. John fourteen nineteen, Because I live you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also. 
The whole Father, Son, and Spirit raised up the body of Christ. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will also raise up our bodies from the grave. John 2 and verse 20. Here we have a confirmation that the Jews did not understand what Jesus said. John chapter 2, verse 20. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? What are they doing? They're taking what Jesus meant spiritually and applying it physically. They, their minds are so fixed on material and physical things, visible things, that they cannot shift from the visible world to the invisible world, from the physical world to the non-physical world, from the material to the immaterial. They can't do that. From that which is fleshly to spiritual. They're incapable of doing it. And so they say this thing about 46 years. It took 46 years to build this temple. Let's also see from a few examples within, within John that they have this propensity to do that. Look at John chapter 3. Let's take a quick journey and see a few examples in John. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus is addressing Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He is a Pharisee. He's a teacher of the Bible to the Jewish people. That's who he is. And Jesus tells him in verse 3, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? We know Jesus didn't mean it that way, but Nicodemus took it physically instead of spiritually. Chapter 4, John chapter 4. Now Jesus goes to the opposite spectrum of people. Now in John chapter 4, he speaks to a woman, he speaks to a Samaritan woman, and he speaks to an, an immoral, sexually immoral or fornicating woman in this chapter. And she's from Samaria. She's not from the Jewish people. She's from a mixed race in the northern part of the land of Israel. And notice when we pick it up, we pick it up at verse 10. John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where, do you, where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. She still doesn't get it. Eventually she does as we keep reading, but she doesn't understand. Jesus is talking about spiritual water himself, 
and she keeps thinking about physical water and the pain and toil she has to undergo all the time when she travels to the well because she's thirsty and everybody else is thirsty for whom she is drawing water from the well. She can't see the spiritual. And our third example is John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is still the 5,000 who were fed the fish and the loaves. And Jesus is speaking to them about the necessity of them believing that he came down out of heaven as the bread of God that came down out of heaven. John 6, 41. 6, 41. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. I came down out of heaven. I am the bread of God. He says that they should partake of him. And they're grumbling because they're taking it physically. And they say physically in verse 42, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know who they are. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They don't get it. They just don't get it. Well, that's the same in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple. They think Jesus is talking about the temple where they are. It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They don't comprehend. Yes, it takes a long time to build a structure, a physical building. It takes a long time. Depending on your resources, it takes a while. It does not happen within three days. No one is able to build a building in three days. Practically, it's impossible to do it in such a short span of time, right? And in their case, they had a beautiful, lavish, broad, spacious temple that that they were enjoying there. And it took them 46 years. 46 years to build it. And will you raise it up in three days? How can you do it in three days? They didn't understand. Verse 21. Verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. John the Apostle is the commentator at this point. He's recording a dialogue And now in 21, John the Apostle is explaining the misunderstanding. He explains what they misunderstood. But he was speaking, Christ was speaking of his bodily temple, the temple of his body, his bodily temple, his physical body as the temple of God because God dwelt in his human nature. His divine nature dwelt in his human nature. The Father dwelt in him. And the Spirit of God dwelt in him. In his bodily, physical, human nature. It was his physical body that he meant. John has to explain. Now, for this matter of John having to explain, this also we find 
that John does so throughout this book. He has to explain one thing or another, something that the people do not understand. Let's look at one example, an example that you may recall. You may recall from John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Jesus may say something, and then it will be misunderstood, and then Jesus clarifies. John chapter 21, verse 18. 21, 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now Jesus is addressing Peter. So verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And this is a reference to John himself, John the Apostle, who's writing this book. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, If I want him to remain until I come, What is that to you? The rest of the disciples who heard about this did not hear it directly from Jesus, so that may be one reason why there was a misunderstanding. Whatever reason, they thought that Jesus was predicting Peter was going to die in a way that was uh, unpleasing to him in a way that was displeasing to him. He did not or would not want to die like that. And outside of the scriptures in church history, we learn that Jesus was also impaled on a cross by the Romans upside down. They murdered, uh, Peter was uh, that way, upside down on the cross. That's what happened to Peter. But to John, he was not going to die. He presumably died a natural death according to church history. He died a natural death. But Peter's wondering what's going to happen to John. And Jesus said, that's none of your business, basically, in verse 22. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Whatever I determine to happen to John will happen to him. You just do what's God's will for you. Well, the disciples, the other disciples thought, John's not going to die. John's never going to die, and then Jesus is going to return. But that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus said, if I want him to remain, what is that to you? That's all Jesus said. So in the same way, the Jews have a tendency, and all interpreters have a tendency to misunderstand Scripture. So when we misunderstand Scripture, what should we do? See if there's an explanation within the same paragraph, which there is right here. In John 2, 18 to 22, our explanation is in verses 21 and 22. Or as we saw in John 21, the explanation was right there at the end of the paragraph of John 21. Often, our explanations will be within the same context. 
And if they're not, as a principle of interpreting the Bible, if the explanation is not evident within the same context, look for it in the chapter, look for it within the same book, or look for it in some other place in the Bible. Start from your immediate passage and then work your way to a broader context and find the explanation so that you clearly and accurately interpret Scripture. Well, let's return to John 2 and verse 21. Jesus refers to his own body as a temple. This should not be a surprise because in Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah the prophet predicted that Christ would be a sanctuary or a holy place, that he would be a sanctuary or a holy place. In John chapter 1, verse 14, 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. You may recall that the original word in John 114 is a word that if we were to translate it literally from John 1.14, it would be, He tabernacled among us. He tabernacled among us. If we could use tabernacle as a verb, that's how we would use it. He tabernacled among us. Just as Moses built the tabernacle, that portable sanctuary, for the glory of God to dwell in it, Jesus' body has become a sanctuary for the glory of the Father to dwell in it, John 1, 14. And as we know in 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The glory of the Father is in this body, this physical body, which in a metaphor is called the temple of God. He was speaking of his own body. Colossians 2, 9, for all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2, 9. And this should not surprise us because we may be more familiar with certain other passages that speak of our bodies, yours and mine, as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians three sixteen, you are a temple of God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we too, we who believe in Christ, are the temple of God. And then lastly, verse 22. John 2, 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. We find here this statement that his disciples remembered that he said this. They remembered once he was raised from the dead, they remembered that he had said this. John does so again. He does so again, for example, in chapter 20. John chapter 20, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he uses a similar phrase. When Jesus rose from the dead, John chapter 20, when Peter and John the apostle notice that the tomb is empty, verse 9, 20 verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That he must rise again from the dead. 
They didn't comprehend it in the full sense, the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They did believe it. They did assent to it. They did believe that he was going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But their faith was not an unshakable faith. It was not clear in all of its aspects. It, was not reach, it did not reach that point until he rose from the dead. And even then, it was even more confirmed on the day of Pentecost by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in them. From the day of Pentecost onward, they have this immovable, unflinching kind of faith. But up to this point, they had their ups and downs. And they pro- progressed and proceeded according to their experiences and the fulfillment of the things written and spoken, uh, spoken by Christ and written by Christ's uh, prophets and apostles. That's the way it was. We cannot take from verse 22 that they never believed anything that Jesus said about his death and resurrection. They did believe those things. Remember John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They did believe, according to the preaching of John the Baptist, that he was going to die as a lamb for their sins. Let's look at other places where Jesus spoke of this, and he spoke of it in more plain terms to his 12 disciples. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And these examples we will consult will show that they clearly did know what Jesus was saying. Not necessarily in every detail, but they understood the substance of what he said. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. What did Peter know? He knew what Jesus said in verse 21. But his mind was focused on the death part in the maltreatment, mistreatment from these people. And his mind wasn't focused on the fact that he needed to do it and rise on the third day for his sins. Not that he didn't believe it, but his mind was focused on that. And so he's saying, no, 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 Lord, I don't want that to happen to you. And Christ rebukes him. Chapter 17, it happens again. Chapter 17 Matthew 17, 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Why were they deeply grieved? Because they weren't thinking about the full purpose of his death, and the fact that he would rise on the third day gloriously, and the immortality that is associated with his immortality and their immortality, and the glories to come in heaven, their minds weren't focused on that when he announced it. Their minds were focused on the tragedy and the suffering of the Lord that they loved. But 
when he rose from the dead, his resurrection that he had been preaching and which they believed, they were comprehending it and embracing it and believing it with greater faith. That's what it means in John 2, 22. That's what it means that his disciples remembered what he had been saying. But notice there's two things in John 2, 22. There are two things that they are remembering. They are remembering the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The two go hand in hand. The scripture means the scripture of the Old Testament, the written word, and then the verbal word of Christ. The two are in harmony. The two conform to each other. There's no contradiction, but there is unanimity and harmony between the two. The verbal word of Christ, which eventually some of those words are written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of them. But that word that he preached and that word that was written by the prophets go together. They believed both. And it gave them greater faith. When they saw from page after page from the Old Testament... And when they saw word after word of Christ being fulfilled, being true, manifested in Christ's own life, manifested in their life, manifested in their growth, Christian experience, their faith was more and more confirmed. This is what happens. There's another place where we hear about the word of Jesus being fulfilled. John chapter 19. John Chapter 19. I'm sorry, yes, sorry, not in 19, 18, 18, verse 9. John 18 and verse 9. Jesus is being arrested and his disciples are going to run away when that incident happens. Look at verse Nine, that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I lost not one. He means he asked his accusers when they were arresting him, listen, they're going to go away, but let them go away. Don't do anything to them. Don't harm them. Because earlier in John chapter 17, when he's praying, He's telling the Father, I kept them and none of them perished except the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot meaning. So they will not perish, only Judas will. So when he's being arrested, he says to the crowds arresting him, you can do what you want to me, but leave these alone. And it was a fulfillment, according to John, verse 9, says that the word of Christ, meaning might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. John 17, 12 was when he first said that. This should be the same with us then. The more we read scripture, the more we compare one scripture with another scripture, it should confirm our faith that what we believe is not full of contradictions. It is not full of contradictions. It is full of harmony. Okay, and one last question we have to answer here is, what would the scripture be? What is the written scripture that was fulfilled? 
John does not tell us exactly which one it was, but there are several. And let's just look at two examples. There are several scriptures, even if he only meant one scripture, it could have been any number of these or all of these and more that John meant. What was the scripture? The first one is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 and verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. This is a psalm that predicts the coming of Christ and how he will be arrested and mistreated by the Jews and the Romans. But verse 7 says, now this is Christ speaking. So the Son of God tells us what the Father says to him. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. That's the Father. He, the Father, said to me, the Son, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. What does it mean, Today I have begotten you, my Son? When was that day that Christ was begotten? It cannot be meaning his deity because he has always existed from eternity past. So there is no one day when he was begotten in that sense. It could not be meaning his birth. It could not be meaning that because he was begotten by or conceived by the Holy Spirit. But in which sense did the Father beget him? And what was the day? in which that happened. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is Paul the Apostle preaching in the synagogue of the Jews. And he's explaining their history and the promise of Christ coming. And verse 32, we pick it up at 1332. And we preach to you the good news, the gospel, of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what is the day? The When he says, today I have begotten you, that day is the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Three days later, when he says, I will raise it up, that is the day that the Father begat the Son. But still, in what sense did he beget him? Colossians 1.18, he is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is called the firstborn from among the dead. Or as in 1 Corinthians 15, to use another analogy, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead or the first fruits of the resurrection. And that is the sense in which the Father has begotten the Son today, the day of Christ's resurrection from the dead. So that's what John means. When he rose from the dead, the scripture, it was like a light bulb came came on, he understood that psalm, it actually happened. This is the way it happened. Another place is Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. 
and verse 10. Psalm 16 and verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, this passage is quoted in the book of Acts. We will turn to it. But what does it mean here? You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Who was the Holy One whose soul will not be abandoned? And who is the Holy One who will not undergo decay? Whose body will not undergo decay? David's body underwent decay. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Peter the apostle preaches. He quotes from this passage a greater portion than what we just read, but he quotes from it, and we pick it up at Acts 2.25. For David says of him, of Christ, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead. David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses." Jesus' body did not suffer decay because he was raised up on the third day as he prophesied, as it says in Psalm 16, verse 10, fulfilled in our Lord's life and ministry, which also recalls the other fact. In Jonah 1.17, remember the sign of Jonah? Well, what is a part of the sign of Jonah? Jonah was, in Jonah 1.17, he was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And Jesus said, as we read in Matthew 12.38-42, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monsters, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All of these are the scriptures of the Old Testament and more that would have come to the mind of John the Apostle, Peter, and everyone else among the prophets and the apostles who knew what the true meaning was of these words, the words of Christ and the written words of the Scriptures. Let's do the same. Let's study like this. Let's believe like this. Let's have our faith confirmed like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.